Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and I'm today joined by Professor David Rosado. He's a professor at Otago Polytechnic and he holds a BSc in Information Systems from Boston University, an MSc in Bioinformatics from the Free University of Berlin and a PhD in Computer Science from the Autonomous University of Madrid. He joined Otago Polytechnic early in 2015 and he's our guest on the podcast today. So hi and welcome, David. Thank you, Oliver. Great to have you here. But with that CV, with studying in well three different countries, how did you end up in New Zealand? Well, I got my PhD uh, right after the big financial crisis of 2007-2008, which hit Spanish housing market pretty badly. So the economy was in disarray at the time. And a lot of young academics who just had graduated from their PhDs, we, we basically had to look for postdoc opportunities abroad because there was basically nothing all day. Like the, the government had huge debts, everything was frozen, like hiring people for universities. So yeah, that, that was, it, it, was not, it was not a choice. It was like something that I, there was not many other options. <laughs> but then you stumbled into a paradise because you told me previously that you really enjoyed what you found here. I mean, yes, I've been living in Australia, New Zealand for several years, and I think these countries have done several things quite right, probably, over the last few decades, because they have enjoyed a lot of economic growth, stability, and I think people can live fulfilling lives in these countries. Great. Now, I've invited you onto our podcast because of your research as a data scientist, computer scientist. But I think before we get into the research, your current research, it's probably worth explaining a little bit about what you do as a computer scientist. So you are into big data collections, big databases, and you're analyzing them, but you're also analyzing them with state-of-the-art tools, with artificial intelligence, machine learning, whatever you might want to call it. Can you tell us a little bit about the discipline you're in? Yeah, I call it computational content analysis. In the social sciences, there is a methodology which is called content analysis that basically consists on human raters looking at big documents of text and counting the number of times that a certain term appears or judging whether a certain theme is present in a corpus of text. And this is very time consuming, very expensive. It doesn't scale. So, you know, you couldn't do that for millions of documents. And there's also the problem that humans are prone to biases when evaluating uh, subjectively, whether, I don't know, the sentiment of a text is positive or whether the political bias of a text is this or that. So instead, I have focused on using computational tools to do that. So using algorithms that go from the very simple, like just counting the frequency with which certain terms appear in a big body of text, to more complicated things like looking at the associations that are prevalent in a piece of text. So in what sort of context certain terms tend to emerge? I don't know if you have heard the term Russell conjugations, but it's basically a, a way of, you know, you can, by uh, manipulating the connotations of a term, you can, you know, like put a lot of semantic overload or charge on something, right? I can describe myself as very determined, you know, and that's, that has positive connotations, but I can say that you are stubborn. And I'm basically describing a very similar phenomena, but just by using these words with different connotations, I can change the payload, the semantic payload, emotional payload of what I'm saying a lot. 
And then like the most sophisticated tools that you can use for automated content analysis are using state-of-the-art machine learning language models that can detect, for example, whether a piece of text is has a very high emotional component, whether it's expressing a lot of anger, fear, sadness, surprise, negativity, positivity, etc. How long has this kind of technical analysis of documents been around? So I think it's something relatively new. I mean, this sort of like well-performing language models didn't exist a few years ago in the, in the field of machine learning. There was a revolution around 2012-2013. There was this architectures called deep learning, deep neural networks started to outperform every other type of models. And and, and yeah, they, they started to catch up with human performance in a lot of tasks. So in terms of like computer vision, I, I think the ability of these systems to recognize objects in images now that they are competitive in comp with human expertise. And also for annotation of text, they have reached human level degree of accuracy of annotation. So I, I don't think you could do it accurately. 10 years ago, for example, but mm -hmm. it's something relatively new. How do I have to imagine that? So are you working together with linguists and psychologists and other scientists from other fields? Or is it just something that you as a computer scientist can do on your own? No, I, I collaborate, uh, for example, with Jamie Halberstadt, which is the head of department of, of the psychology department at the University of Otago. And, and it's good, these sort of collaborations, because any human being can only be an expert in a just few minuscule fields and it's good to collaborate with people that bring different perspectives and that help you uh, see things that otherwise on your own you probably wouldn't see. Mm. So we're talking about something that's really cutting edge, state of the art and interdisciplinary. So a really interesting new approach to an analyzing data and text actually I and mean, turning text into data really. The topic I wanted to talk about with you is a bit difficult for a podcast in a way because a lot of the data analysis would become immediately clear if people could just see it because it's very visual when you have a graph in front of you. So I just wanted to alert our listeners. If you want to see any of the graphs that David has produced in his research, you can find them quite easily. Actually, you just have to follow him on Twitter at David Rosado. And you have tweeted recently quite a few interesting graphs from your analysis of scholarly literature, but also from your analysis of the media. Maybe start with the media first. I think that was your first big project. What kind of database did you build for that one? So basically, four or five years ago, I started to use computational tools to monitor news media content. So basically millions of news and opinion articles that have been generated by the most sort of like the top 20, top 30 most popular news outlets in the US, the United States. And then I started to, to make counts of words or terms that are often used to denounce prejudice. So terms such as racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, transphobia Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. And what I noticed is that there was an explosion in the frequency with which these terms are used in the media post-2010. And a lot of people, when they look at the graph, they immediately assume that this is because of Trump. Well, the graph, actually, I should say, it looks like a hockey stick, really, because it was flat for a long time. And yeah. suddenly, out of nowhere, it shoots up 
and yeah, increases yeah, yeah. by hundreds of percentage points. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you see things such as white supremacy increasing in in the New York Times and the Washington Post by over four thousand percent within the span of just ten years, which is quite dramatic, as you said. And really across the board. So newspapers of yeah, all sorts of different in persuasions. The, New York Post, the Wall Street Journal is it's happening everywhere. And by the way, how many millions of articles did you have in your database? For the United States analysis, it was forty-seven popular news media outlets in the U.S. Yep, twenty-seven million. Twenty-seven news. million articles. Yeah, over yes. a period of a, a decade or so? No, no, it was from 1970 until 2020. Right, okay. So, so basically okay. from when you started the analysis 1970 to about 2010, not much is happening, not much is changing, right? There you, you can see a minor wave in the 1990s. The so perhaps, I mean, people refer to that time as the politically correct decade. Yeah, yeah. You can see a, a very tiny wave spiking interest in this topic but you nothing compared what, to what and happened afterwards. Comparison to what happened post-2010. And that's the big question. What happened around that time? And unfortunately, I don't have the answer I really would like to know. Okay, There's but, a lot of hypotheses. But before we get to that, what happened? And, and try to speculate on that. I just want to delve into one minor point there. So you say it's something that happened across the political spectrum. And we, we, we know, of course, the American media market it is probably quite polarized. So you've got quality newspapers, you've got tabloids, you have right-leaning publications, you've got left-leaning publications. But this is a trend that you yeah. detected across all of them, regardless of whether they're tabloid or quality, left or right or center. All the newspapers are doing the same. Yes. And I also replicated these results in the UK. And in both the US and the UK, you can see that the trend is a bit more acute in left-leaning news media, but it's also happening in right-leaning news media. Granted, some of the occurrences in right-leaning new media could be criticism of this phenomena, but by qualitatively inspecting some of these instances, you notice that many of them are sort of in the same spirit as the centrist or left-leaning media. It's not just criticism. And I, th I think something important to, to emphasize, as I mentioned before, is, is that a lot of people assume that this is because of the controversial years of the Trump presidency. But it, the, 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 you can see in the, in the charts that the trend started before 2015. So in 2015, he came down the escalators in Trump Tower and he announced that he was running for the nomination of the Republican Party for the presidency of the United States. That was May or June 2015. But in 2014, one year before that, the usage of these terms were already at record highs historically. They were higher than in 2013, 2012. So this, this trend was already happening. Perhaps his presidency reinforced the trend or consolidated mm -hmm. the trend, but they started before. I think this is important to emphasize that. So in that sense, Trump was more a symptom than a cause. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if, if it was a response to this phenomena or it's, it was just a coincidence. I, I cannot tell. But but I think what, what the data shows is that this started before Trump. Okay. The other question I have is actually, okay, newspapers might report on racist incidents, but that doesn't tell you anything about the tone of the newspaper reporting. What happened or what, what have you found actually in your analysis of the tone of newspaper articles? Are they descriptive or are they in any way biased or are they conveying more opinion rather than facts? What have you found about how newspapers actually report on these issues? Yeah, so th this is another work I have done about looking, for example, at political associations in news media content. 
So basically looking at the context in which target words occur. So what is the context in which the New York Times uses the word Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative? And then you can look at the emotional balance of those contextual words, whether they are positive or negative. And well, something that you find that is perhaps not too surprising is that the left-leaning newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, they tend to associate positive terms with liberals, with Democrats, and negative terms with conservatives and Republicans. And you see the opposite in Fox News and Breitbart, so negative associations with Democrats and liberals. But what, what I think is very interesting that I found in, in this paper was that the intensity of, of this asymmetry is increasing over time. So in the 1970s, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they were pretty much neutral in this regard. Perhaps they had a very tiny tendency to associate positive terms with Democrats and negative terms with Republicans, but it was very minor. But it has been growing over time. And you see the same, for example, also in, for example, in, in, in other news media like the New York Post, which is sort of right-leaning. So in a way, that's um, just pointing sort of at a polarization. Polarization, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the question is, it's, it's a chicken and egg problem. Does the polarization of the media reflect the polarization of the political system in general, or is it the other way around? Is it the political system's polarization that actually drives media behavior in that way? But you probably couldn't answer that based on your research. No, the, the data cannot answer that. There is the theoretical speculation of this theory in this body of theoretical research it's called agenda setting theory which suggests that the media drives what sort of topics are of concern to public opinion so it has been found that for example when the media starts to talk a lot about crime or immigration the, the public starts to worry a, lo a lot about that irrespective of the actual baseline levels of crime perhaps crime is going down the media talks more about that people are more worried about crime mm. and and you looked specifically at headlines as well didn't you Yes, that's another. That this is a paper that is under review right now. Here, I'm using these very sophisticated machine learning language models. These these are language models that have been trained on huge amounts of text, and they have been fine tuned to classify text as being positive, negative, or conveying anger or fear or joy. So, what I did with this data set was to feed these machine learning models some instances of headlines. And then they spit out a prediction. This headline codifies negativity or positivity, right? If the headline says the economy is growing by 5% per year, unemployment reaches record lows, this gets classified as positive. And yeah, the, the, the trend here that I found is that since around the year 2000, headlines are getting more and more negative over time. And they express more and more anger. Is that because these newspapers might want to have more people click on their stories? It could be because you you see that the, the, the trend for the first decade of the 2000s decade is relatively very minor, but things spike or get more aggravated since 2010. So again, you see this critical year, which is not precisely 2010. It could be around 2009, 2011, but something happened there. And the news media started to create more negative headlines. And again, the question is why? 
and there we can only speculate. But I mean, if you go back through journalism history, and I mean, really about a hundred years, there's an old joke, how not to write a headline. And the example was small earthquake in Chile, not many dead. <laughs> so, of course, that wasn't a headline that you wanted to read even a hundred years ago because it didn't sell newspapers. But of course, in an age where you have to sell individual articles, well, that headline would be almost suicidal for a media organization because you might just as well forget about it. So, of course, you have a headline that entices your readers. And especially if you're then trying to also place these articles in the social media contexts. Is that one of your suspicions, what might have happened? Yes, yes. There's a lot of, there's a big body of evidence in the literature that newspapers use social media to propagate their articles. And it has been shown that in social media, if you use a lot of negativity, so negative tweets on average propagate more than neutral or positive tweets. And also attacking a, a political outgroup also gets higher propagation than a more neutral sort of tone. So there's, there could be here like some very perverse incentives after the financial crisis, revenues of media companies collapsed. They haven't yet figured out this new subscription model. So they, there is an incentive for them to get a lot of clicks on their articles. And by using negativity, you can get that. Of course, this, this is just speculation, but it could be a factor probably of many others. And there's another factor, because right about the same time, a lot of newspapers started introducing paywalls. So yeah. now you have to motivate your readers to stay actually uh, as a paying subscriber. And what do you offer them? Something that they probably agree with. Yeah, yeah, I, I suspect that's another issue. So like in the social sciences, you know, you're dealing with super complex phenomena. Often there is a lot of factors working simultaneously. I think what you just mentioned is another of those factors. They need to cater to the audience. And it's just around that time when they figure out that that business model works. Like, for example, the New York Times now has a very profitable subscription model. They are making a lot of money with that. But it's something that is relatively new that just has just happened over the last few years. But that also means that a paper like the New York Times has to cater to its paying readers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they couldn't it. just start surprising them with stuff out of left field because that would only jeopardize their business model. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, you've taken the same kind of data analysis and text analysis to the sphere of academia and academic publishing. What have you found there? So the trends there are different. So when you use the same techniques to analyze millions of scientific, academic, scholarly papers over the last few decades, you, you also see a spike in interest in these topics of prejudice and social justice post-2010, but it's not as acute as in the, in the news media. And what you see is that this in the academy that this trend has been building up over many decades. So it, it has been a slow and gradual process in which the prevalence of these topics was growing decade after decade. And yeah, that's the big difference with respect to news media. So would you say that academia actually preceded a lot of the developments we now see in the newspapers? So this terminology was being created or embraced in the academy many decades before it got massive adoption in news media. That's what the data shows. But even in academia, it used to be quite reserved to the fringes of academia. It wasn't actually a, a mass phenomenon until maybe 20 years ago? The, the phenomena is complex, so it, the, the dynamics are slightly different. 
for example, for different prejudice types. So, for example, for ethnic prejudice, you see four waves very clearly delineated through time. The first one makes a lot of sense. In the 1940s, there was a lot of discussion about racism, right? Because of World War II and everything that was happening. Then you see another one post-1968, civil rights movement also yes. makes a lot of sense. Then you see the third one happening in the 1990s, which again, some people have referred as the politically correct years. And then you see the last one post-2010. And something that is important, again, it's unfortunate that we are talking about these trends when it's so easy to just visualize them if you look at the chart. But something that I think is important is that after each one of these waves, the baseline doesn't go back to the previous level. It's always higher and higher. So there is this gradual increase in the prominence of the, these topics in academic literature over several decades. Mm -hmm. Now let's speculate a little bit about what that tells us about society. Well, first of all, I'm reminded of the great sociologist Emil Durkheim. And if I understand Durkheim correctly, and he wrote more than 100 years ago, whenever there is abrupt change in society, it points to some pathology happening. Something's not quite right, because societies usually evolve much more gradually over time. So when you see such an abrupt change, it points to some underlying problems. The other question I have, and it builds on this Durkheim insight, if you had asked me, just without your analysis, um, how has society actually developed in, in terms of, for example, anti-gay sentiment? I would have actually thought that today the situation, if you are gay, is a lot better than it was 40 or 50 years ago, where that would have been a criminal act in many countries around the world. And of course, it no longer is, and thank God for that. Uh, so same with racism. I think there were clear uh, race discrimination incidents, of course, in the U.S., but in many other countries as well. I mean, we think of Rosa Parks, for example, we think of Martin Luther King. So there were clear evidences of racism back then, but I would have hoped that it had improved over time. And yet, when you see your word analysis, you see the opposite trend, actually, as the phenomenon, at least in my perception, gradually subsides, thankfully, we have a lot more attention dedicated to that. Is that how you would see that too? Or can you actually test the hypothesis? Yeah, well, that's that's the big paradox, right? So there is a lot of survey data suggesting that at least overt expressions of prejudice are decreasing over time. So of course, you, you can never know what's going on in people's brains, right? But when you ask people, you know, would you be okay with your children marrying someone from a different race, etc., over time, people are expressing less prejudicial attitudes. Yet, news media and the academy are talking more and more about these topics, and that's the, the big paradox. There's, a, again, a lot of speculation about why that could be happening. S certainly, societies probably have become more sensitive to this topic. Societies, perhaps five decades ago, would be constitutionally incapable of recognizing or denouncing prejudice. While nowadays they are much more capable of doing that, that's probably one factor. Another, other people have speculated that there there could be some sort of dilution of the semantic content of these terms over time. The, I think the academic term is concept creep. There's a cognitive bias. It's called prevalence-induced concept change, which basically has shown that if if people start to see less and less of an stimuli over time, they start to increase 
the, the, the definition of the, of, the, of the stimuli to see more of it, even though it is decreasing. So that could also be playing a factor. For example, if you look at this concept of microaggressions, right, uh, which was created by an academic in the US, and they basically argue, for example, that if you ask a foreign person like me in New Zealand, where are you from, that that could consist of racist microaggressions. So asking someone which country are they from is classified as a racist microaggression. So that this is a very different definition of the term as what perhaps was four decades ago. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you lower the threshold to define what constitutes an stimuli, you should see more of it. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is actually in the context of the US, you mentioned if you ask people, would you be happy for your son or daughter to marry someone of a different skin color? I think over time you would see that that factor disappears and people don't care anymore. But if you ask the same question, would you be happy as a Democrat family for your child to marry a Republican or vice versa? That suddenly becomes a big problem. So you've got some discriminations disappearing, thankfully, over time. And on the other hand, you have this increase in political polarization. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's all very well characterized in the literature. So, for example, the GSS social survey in the United States has very well characterized all these questions about prejudicial attitudes, but then you also have like a lot of body of evidence showing these increases in you know, intolerance and political polarization. Mm. Now, let's speculate a little bit about the, some other reasons behind it, if you like. What importance do you think comes down to international media, and especially media from countries that are a bit more authoritarian or dictatorships, are they shaping the discourse in countries like the US or New Zealand or Australia? Have you found any evidence of that? I'm, I'm looking into that right now. I, I'm, I'm trying to test whether this phenomena that we are discussing has been called wokeness in the United States. I, I don't like the term very much, but it has become the, the your term to use to describe this phenomenon. A lot of people understand what we mean by using it. So I'll use it. So yeah, I'm trying to determine to what extent wokeness is becoming an, an international phenomenon. There's this famous economist in the US, Tyler Cohen. Yes. He he has written a lot of articles suggesting that wokeness is an, is an American cultural export. That is, is something that was created in America and is 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 being exported to the to to all over the world. And he he's critical of, of some aspects and excesses of wokeness, but he thinks in general wokeness will be a positive net positive benefit for the world because there is so much injustice in the world. That's what he says. And I think there's a lot of assumptions in, in what he says. First of all, like whether wokeness is an American phenomena, I'm I'm not sure if this is the case. And this is what I'm trying to to determine. And I have preliminary evidence that perhaps wokeness is, is not something that was created in the United States, but it's something that emerged almost simultaneously in, in a lot of different countries. And in terms of political foes, adversaries like Russia, Iran, China, they, they, they could be using this phenomena sort of as a, as a weapon, as a geopolitical weapon to mock or to criticize adversaries. Because if you are a geopolitical adversary, you would have an interest in polarization in your enemies' countries. Exactly. So, for example, if you look at the, you know, like Russian state media funded, you know, for international projection, like RT and Sputnik News, 
if you look at the articles, they are it's basically like mocking the West in terms of wokeness, right? So it's, 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 they talk a lot about racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, but to mock the West and describe the West as you know countries that have lost their ways. And if you look at China's state media, so People's Daily, which is the biggest one, and their translations into English. So you, you see something slightly different. You see you see them fully embracing the wokeness terminology, but to criticize the United States, to say, yes, the United States is like treats people from different ethnicities very badly. There's a lot of systemic racism. They are pure evil. So it's, it's a very different strategy than, than, than Russia. And the same in Iran. You look at the Iran's state media, translated into English, and it's a lot of, yes, in the, in the United States, African-Americans get sterilized by the state. They, they present it as if it's something that is occurring right now. And they, if you are black, doctors will not treat you or they will assume that you are faking your pain. So I have some preliminary evidence that these countries mm. are leveraging this terminology to either mock, make fun of, or undermine or criticize the West. It's just very interesting, right? Like I'm, I'm looking at this Chinese media, you know, and you just never see, they talk about Islamophobia, but it's never about, you know, like... It's never <laughs> it's about the wickets. In terms of like doing criticism to themselves, yes. right? It's always about the West. Yes. So what we can take out of your research as consumers of media is probably a greater awareness of the biases that are happening in the media worldwide we could probably also ask ourselves whether the reporting we get on our media is still journalism or whether this is basically a transformation of journalism into opinion reporting. So I think once we have seen your data, we will be a little bit more alert to these changes. But what do you as a researcher want to get out of this? I mean, apart from the fact that you are a data scientist and you probably find this extremely interesting what you can do with data, but is there anything that you would like the public to learn from your research? that these institutions are very important and so the media and the academy i think are critical to the functioning of technologically advanced society where everyone has should have an opportunity to flourish we need them we need them to seek truth because we we need that to navigate societal problems right and i mean i, I think of the analogy of flying an airplane Right, like you want your instruments to tell you the truth. It, that you know, like the instruments telling you pleasant lies. You know, like you're fine, fine, everything is fine. Uh, it will feel good for a while, but eventually it can be very dangerous. So it's mm. super important that these institutions fulfill their duty to to report the truth, because otherwise people will start to detect that something is not quite right, and they will gravitate to other sources. And that doesn't mean that those sources are going to give them the truth. Sometimes they are going to give them pure propaganda and misinformation about vaccines, pandemics, you name it. So it's like we need these institutions and we need them to work properly. And it would be good to have tools that allow the people to look into these institutions and how they work, make well, sure that they're doing their duties. Then I wish you all the best in your struggle to help the truth prevail. And we thank you for your time on our podcast. 
and uh, I wish you all the best for your future research and for our listeners. Again, if you're interested in some of the findings from David's research, you can find some graphs of the research on his Twitter profile at David Rosado, and I think you will find them fascinating. But for now, thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you.